What percentage of calls or emails that you get are spam? Don't bother checking. As of January of 2023, the US received the highest number of spam emails of all countries at 8.6 billion spam emails per day. Spam accounts for 71% of all emails. Now, a typical American gets 28.4 spam calls monthly. And I bet that I'm getting more than that, more than one a day. These numbers are continuously increasing. Since the level of trust that I have in people trying to sell me something is the product of my trustfulness, my willingness to trust salespeople in general, and the salesperson's own trustworthiness, and my trustfulness continues to decline because of all the spams and scams, the only way to be able to close deals is if you increase your trustworthiness. Stop trying to close deals by lowering the price. Try doing it by increasing your trustworthiness. In this episode, I will give you seven tips on how to be a more trusted salesperson. Now, those are not going to be the usual tips that you will get from a sales trainer or expert, but those relate specifically to building trust in you. Right after this. Welcome to The Trust Show. I'm Yoram Solomon, your host, the author of The Book of Trust and facilitator of The Trust Habits Workshop. My mission is simple. I want to help you form habits that build your trustworthiness because the answer to this question will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? Before I start, I need to uh, go back to explain the differences between, I use two words, uh, scam and spam. In both cases, those are phone calls or emails that, that you don't want necessarily. Scams are when they're trying to get money from you without giving you any value. So trying to steal your password so they can access your bank accounts or, you know, make you believe that maybe a family member is kidnapped and, and you need to pay ransom or, or just, you know, putting malware in your computers and uh, locking your computers. And then they're going to ask for um, a ransom to just get uh, the uh, computer back, uh, access back to your information and your systems. Uh, that's called ransomware. Those are scams, okay? There is absolutely no intention of giving you any value. I separate that from spam, which is when they're trying to get money from you, but while giving you something, except that it's something that maybe is not worth the amount of money that they're asking for. Um, maybe it's something that you don't value. So this is when somebody just calls everyone in a mailing list that they bought to sell them something that some of them just don't need. Either way, those are not calls that, that you want to get. And those calls cause a reduction in the overall trustfulness that we have in salespeople, in, in companies trying to sell us something. 
Back in 2018, I did a survey and, and I asked the question, what is the most important quality for you in other people? And I asked about six types of people and, and on average across those six different types and, and the types were your boss, your employees, your peer, a salesperson trying to sell you something, a government representative and your spouse. So on average, the most important quality was trustworthiness 61.2% of the time. Trustworthiness was the highest required, not, not that it was reported that it was the highest for this type of people, but it was the most important quality, the most in salespeople, 77.6%, more than the next five types uh, combined. So we value trustworthiness in salespeople 77.6% of the time. So I decided to do another survey, and in that survey, I wanted to see if people are willing to put their money where their mouth is. So I gave a scenario where you want to do some kind of a uh, home improvement project estimated at about $10,000. And you do your research, and, and you narrow it down to two companies, and you invite two uh people, two salespeople to come over. Both of them are coming not at the same time. One of them, I used my relative trust model to describe that person as very, very trustworthy without using the word. So I, I didn't say this was trustworthy. I just described that person as trustworthy. And that person, um, you know, he was the owner of the business and been in business for 20 years and uh, very good reviews and so on. But the most important part was how they interacted with you and, and how you felt that you they really care about what you get rather than what they have to sell. So that was the trustworthy one. Then I described the second trust person, uh, a second salesperson who was anything but trustworthy, very untrustworthy in the way they behaved. Um, again, without using the words untrustworthy. At the end of the day, they both left and then they sent back quotes. Both quotes were for exactly the same price, $10,000. Which one would you choose? The trustworthy one or the untrustworthy one? You know, it's funny how many times people think when I ask this question, uh, they think that it's a um, um, it, it's a, a rhetorical question. It's not. I'm, I'm serious. But but the answer is pretty clear. It's 100 percent. 100 percent of the time they will prefer the trustworthy salesperson over the untrustworthy salesperson if the price was the same. And we're talking about ten thousand dollars in that example. OK, so then. I asked, what if this trustworthy salesperson would ask for 10% higher price? So 11,000 versus 10,000. So now I look at them as the trustworthy versus the cheap one. 100% of the people still chose the trustworthy one. I would rather pay 11,000 and get it from somebody I trust then pay 10,000 and get it from somebody I don't trust. <laughs> Actually, I don't trust that I'm going to get it or not get it in, in good quality or what I expected. How about 20% higher price? If the trustworthy salesperson would ask for 20% higher price, 12,000 versus 10,000, 58.2% of the respondents still said they would go with the trustworthy one. 
more than half. By the way, 32.7% said, I don't know, but it's still going to be one of the two. So I can take the 32.7% and split it half to the trustworthy and half to the cheap one. At 50% higher price, 15,000 versus 10,000, I still had 21, more than 21% who said we're going to take it from the trustworthy salesperson. And 38.2% said, I'm not sure. And then I got quite a few that said, I'm going to take it from the untrustworthy or the cheaper one. And it really comes down to, um, there are several parameters that would affect those numbers. One of them, for example, is what are the consequences of uh, doing a bad job? If the consequences are irrecoverable, if we're not talking about a home renovation, a $10,000 home renovation project, but we're talking about, uh, I don't know, building a rocket uh, or or brain surgery or flying a plane, uh, you know, the, obviously there is a much higher premium for being trustworthy. Uh, versus uh, if the consequences are very low or if I can control the work or, uh, you know, if I know enough uh, how to do it myself to be able to monitor, then the premium is lower. But what I found based on those numbers is something that allowed me to make the following two statements. One is a trustworthy salesperson can sell the same product or, or service for 29.6% higher price and still get the business. That That's when the crossover point, the crossover point between one to the other is at 29.6% on average. The second is, this is what often happens when, when somebody doesn't want to buy, you start playing with the price, you lower the price. An untrustworthy salesperson would have to lower the price 22.8% to get to that crossover point. You would have to discount it by 22.8%. You know, a funny thing is the first book I ever wrote that had the word trust in the title was for salespeople. It was called uh, Can I Trust You? That that was a series of book. It is a series of book. Currently has five. Uh, and this one was 50 plus one habits that will make you a trustworthy salesperson. What I'm going to do in the next segment in this episode is I'm going to give you those seven tips, seven very specific tips. And, you know, it's not going to be the standard tips that you would get from any sales trainer. Um, it's going to be tips that directly relate to trust in my relative trust model. So let's start with the first one. You know, when Maya was was very little, my first daughter, when she was very little, it, it was actually before Shira was even born, so Maya was less than two years old, uh, she decided one day that she wanted to call me at the office. And so she asked mom, uh, can I call dad? And mom said, sure, but she gave her a few instructions. So my wife and I have this deal. If, if she calls me and and even if I answer the phone, but I can't really talk. The first question she asked, my wife, that is, is, can you talk right now? And if I can't, I would say, no, I can't. And, and she would drop it unless it's an emergency, obviously. But if it's not an emergency, she'll drop it and, and I'll remember to call her back and uh, when, I'm, when I'm free and, and see what she needed. So she instructed Maya. She said, Maya, listen, the first thing you have to do is you have to ask daddy if he can talk. So I'm at the office, my phone rings, I answer the phone, and I hear Maya. 
and Maya goes, hi, daddy, this is Maya. Can you talk right now? Now, I was in the middle of something, and as much as I wanted to talk to her, I, I couldn't. So I said, Maya, I'm sorry, I can't talk right now. And then she went on to keep on talking, because you see, my wife didn't tell her what to do if I say that I can't. She assumed that, that Maya would understand that if I say no, this is where the call ends. You know, this is one of the easiest things that you can do, really, as a salesperson. When you approach someone who did not expect you to approach them, maybe even if they did expect you to approach them, just ask them, is this a good time? You know, hi, this is Yoram. Uh, I, I want to talk to you about, uh, I don't know, uh, getting you a sponsorship for my podcast, whatever. Uh, do you have time to talk about this right now? It shouldn't take more than 10 minutes. Give them the option. If they say no, respect it. Hang out. Would there be a better time for me to call? Very, very few calls that I get actually ask that question. They immediately go into the sales pitch. And they lose my trust as a result. Because I believe they're going to spam me more than really offer me something of value. I, I, I feel that they don't care about the value that I get. When when they they say, sure, we have the time. First of all, you, you notice that I already said how long I expected this call to, to take place or, or to last. And, and set the outline. What, what, is, what am I trying to do now? I'm trying to get you to sponsor my, my uh, podcast. Uh, my podcast is, you know, about trust. Uh, this is a solo podcast. What I'm trying to get in this call is to see if you're interested so we can set up another meeting maybe or a Zoom call because this one is a phone call or, or what have you. But I'm setting the expectation to what this call, how this call or the sales call or, or even a meeting, how will it how long would it be? What will happen? What are the possible outcomes? And stick to it. You know, don't say it's not going to take more than five minutes. I mean, how many times do you get a call from someone, even if it's a friend who says, do you got a minute? And you go, sure. And 30 minutes later, the call is still on. No, if you said it's going to take 10 minutes, you know, one of the best things that you can do is if you said it's going to take 10 minutes, if we're at nine minutes, I would actually say, uh, I, I want to respect your time. I told you this call is going to take 10 minutes. Uh, we have one minute left. And either you set up the call to end in one minute or ask, do you have another five minutes that we can continue? It's fine if you don't. People like predictability. People like to feel that you care about them, about their side of this conversation. So the first tip is... See if this is a good time for them. Ask if this is a good time for them. Don't launch into your sales pitch. Tip number two, first impression. We need information to feel safe. We need a certain amount of information to feel safe. When we don't have that amount of information, we make assumptions. Obviously, when we make assumptions, there is a higher probability to misinterpret things that we see or things that we observe or hear or think that we hear or think that we saw. So it's very tricky what happens in the first, maybe it's the first eight seconds. 
One of the examples I like to give in my workshops is um, when a, uh, you know, I wanted to renovate our pool. And so I asked for offers for proposals from three different companies. Three different salespeople came from the three companies. One of them came with a very beat up, old, rusted, parts falling apart Toyota Corolla. This is not about the car, but this is the car that he came in with. The second came with a Ford F-150, looked to be not more than five years old, good shape, tools in the back, clean. And the third one came in a a Maserati, a highly sporty car. Uh, My guess is probably a $150,000 car, maybe more. So I show pictures of those three cars to people in my workshops and I ask them, who would you hire? And almost everybody goes for the Ford F-150. And I ask them why? They say, well, the, the guy with the Toyota beat up old Toyota Corolla, he's probably not very good at what he does because he can't afford something better than this. He's not making enough money. The guy in the Maserati is probably skimping on his costs, probably overcharging, because getting a car like this must mean that he's making too much profit. Whereas the guy with the Ford F-150 seems to be very pragmatic. It's a very utilitarian utilitarian car. This is the car that he needs. Um, He's taking care of it. It's not too old. It's not too beat up. He's not overly expensive, which would make me think that uh, he's making too much profit and and so on. So almost everybody chooses the F-150. The funny thing is you don't know anything about the salesperson. You don't know anything about the company. We're making assumptions because we need enough information that we don't have initially in the first few seconds, first few minutes, we fill up information. You You have to care about what you look like when you show up what you drive, sometimes even the pen that you use, everything about you lends itself to assumptions that your customer is making. Another part of that is is be on time. You know, even if you're five minutes late, do all people care that you're five minutes late? Probably not. But if you're trying to sell them, especially if you're trying to sell them a service and they look at their watch and they go, he showed up 20 minutes late and it's not like you apologize. It's not like you called in advance. But by the way, one of the things that that I do, if for any reason I'm going to be late, which I try to make sure that I never will be late, but every now and then it does happen when I know it's I'm going to be late. Like, you know, I'm, I'm cutting traffic in a completely unpredictable way because I try to predict traffic so that I'll always be there early, early enough. By the way, I don't If I'm 20 minutes early, I'm not going to walk into or knock on their door 20 minutes before time. I would rather wait in the car and and show up close to time. But don't be late. Not all people will care if you're late, but those who will, will deduct from this, will assume that you're going to be late and irresponsible when you actually do the work. One of the best statements, which I really don't know, I couldn't find who originally generated this quote, is that you don't get a second chance to make a first impression. 
So your first impression has a big impact on the level of trust that your customers have in you. Number three, find what you have in common with the customer. Do your homework. Now, don't do it in a creepy way. <laughs> you know, uh, just recently, I, I closed a, a deal where I found that uh, my client went to the same college that my daughter went to. Different times, obviously. Another one lived somewhere where I used to live. And, uh, you know, you just bring this up. And by the way, in order not to be creepy, just say, uh, you know, on your LinkedIn account, it says that. Or, or you know, Facebook is, is getting a little tricky because Facebook is more personal rather than, than uh, professional. But um, one of the things that I found in one of my surveys was that shared values had the highest correlation with trust, 86% more than any other component that, that's in my model. So the fact that you know that you have something in common and you can bring it up immediately builds some trust through the component of personality compatibility and specifically shared values. By the way, be careful. Know what you don't have in common with them and try to stay away from that. You know, to me, at least on Facebook, it's very easy for me, as soon as somebody wants to connect with me, to tell um, what party affiliation they, they have. Why is that? Because I have a lot of friends on Facebook. Many of them are Republicans and many of them are Democrats. So I got members from both parties. And if you're local here, the probability that we have friends in common is pretty high and it's very easy. Um, Profile comes up, um, a friend request, and I see who we have in common, and I can immediately tell uh, whether you're a Democrat or Republican. Obviously, to me, that doesn't matter, but for some people, it does. We have a pretty high level of uh, political uh, polarization today, and for some people, that really matters. So know what you don't have in common and make sure that those things don't come up. Keep in mind, every person is different. Use empathy. See things from their perspective. Listen, take breaks. You know, when 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 you launch on your on your uh, uh, sales speech, don't just keep on going and going and going and going. Take breaks. Let them ask questions. See if they're following you. Ask if everything is clear. Maybe repeat something to make sure it's clear. When you listen to them, listen, as, as Stephen Covey said, listen with an intent to understand, not with an intent to respond. Don't make assumptions yourself. If, if you're not sure about some, something, you don't make assumptions. You need to control, make sure that they are not in a position to make assumptions so you're clear, you're transparent, um, but make sure that you don't make assumptions about their perspective. Ask whenever you're not sure. Pay attention to their body language. Their body language might say something a little different than what their words do. And I'll talk more about that in, in number six. And, and respect their boundaries. You know, there are certain things that you can say to one person, but not to another person. So don't, don't try to push the boundary too far. See... Observe their boundaries, observe what's appropriate with them and what's not appropriate with them. And, and it's not the same thing for different for different customers. It would be different things, which is why you need to observe it and respect, respect their boundaries. 
Number four. You know how uh, in almost every sales training, I don't know if any, every sales training anymore, but the customer is always right, right? No, number four is the customer is not always right. I remember uh, when I worked at TI, we had a customer that, uh, you know, most people hated, most people at TI hated dealing with him. He was, he was very, I, I don't know, I, I don't know if the word is arrogant, but he was very demanding. I mean, he treated us as the low-life supplier where he is the uh, the customer, the, uh, um, I don't know, the honorable customer. And, and so most people who dealt with him, uh, they, they used to just ask him what you want and, and, you know, give him what he wanted or make promises. One day we, we had dinner um, and all of a sudden out of the blue, he said, you know, I, I enjoy working with you the most. And so I was kind of surprised and I asked why. He said, because you're the only person that has absolutely no problem telling me that what I'm asking for is complete BS. And, and then you tell me what you believe that I really need. And, and you really do listen to me. So he felt that I cared about what he really needed more than just satisfying what he says he wanted. He appreciated that. Customers appreciate that. You know, and always keep, also keep in mind, it's not only that the customer is not always right. You are not always right. And, and the more you can acknowledge that you are not right then the more you're able to say, I was wrong, or say, I don't know. And when you say those things, they respect that. Customers respect that you, you know how to say, I was wrong. Because if you pretend to know everything, they're not going to trust you. Because now they don't know what you really know versus what you pretend to know. But when you start saying, I don't know, or I was wrong, then it gives a lot more credibility to the times you do know something or you're right. So remember that the customer is not always right and neither are you. Number five, own your side of communications and even more important, own your side of miscommunications. So communications, and I talk about I talked about that several times in, in different episodes of this podcast. Communication starts with a message in my head. Okay. Then it needs to come out of my mouth. And when it comes out of my mouth, you know how sometimes the words that come out of your mouth are not what started in your brain? And you go, that sounded so much better in my head. Or did I say this out loud? So that's already the first miscommunication, brain to mouth. Now, from my mouth to your ear, there's noise. You know, I tried telling my daughters that if the air conditioner is operating, is working in my office, and they yell from the kitchen, I'm not going to hear them. I'm just going to hear the air conditioner. So there's noise and, and other reasons why what you hear, what, what comes through your ear, I should say, is not exactly what came out of my mouth. Just play the game telephone and you'll see. Then the last part of it is what comes through your ear gets translated into a message in your brain and it gets translated and distorted through your values, through your cognitive processes or anything else that would affect what you actually believe that you heard here uh, that you heard. 
And sometimes we we believe we heard something that was not really said. You know, maybe we haven't interpreted the tone of voice or, or something like that. That's miscommunication. Now, what do you do when there is miscommunication? One thing that we often do, and, and I hate when, when that happens, is that if you didn't understand what I said, then I'm going to say you don't understand. You didn't understand. When you say to me, you didn't understand, or when I say to you, you didn't understand, I put you on the defense. When you tell your customer you didn't understand what I said, you put the customer on the defense. You don't want to put them on the defense. Instead, what you want to do is say, I don't think that I explained it well. Let me try again. And, and you know, don't use a tone of voice that would make it feel that that's not really what you think, that you really think that they didn't understand you. Really own it. They didn't understand what you said on your side. I, I didn't explain it and, and really mean it. I didn't explain it. Let me try again. Or if they said something and you didn't understand, don't tell them that they don't know how to explain it, that they didn't explain it right. Once again, you're putting them on the defense. But if you're saying, I'm sorry, I, I didn't understand. Can you try again? Uh, maybe describe it a little more so, so that I'll understand. When you say things like this, you put them on your side. Now they want to help. And that means that they, you, you can, that they can trust you more. So own your side of miscommunications. Don't put them on the defense. Number six, the level of trust that one person has in another person or, or the trustworthiness of the other person is made of two groups of components, the what, who you are and what you do. What you do will affect a sales call. When you're interacting with someone trying to get to a deal, trying to get to a sale, uh, it's what you do. And what you do is made by the positivity. And, and that's essentially everything else that I described. But it's accelerated by time and intimacy. The longest it will take you to close a deal is if you try to do it over email. It's going to be faster over the phone. It's going to be the fastest if you do it in person. But Albert Morabian, in his book, Silent Messages, in, in the introduction, said when the words that we use and the hidden messages contained within them are inconsistent, people distrust what we say or something very similar. So seeing that your body language and your words and so let, let's just say nonverbals and words, seeing that they're consistent will accelerate the trust that your customer has in you. Seeing that they're inconsistent would accelerate distrust that they have in you. So assuming that you are, you say what you mean and you mean what you say, therefore your body language or nonverbal communication is going to be consistent with your verbal communication, try to meet in person. Second alternative would be over a video, some kind of a video call. And again, even if you're doing a video call, make sure that you look professional. Don't, don't go for phone calls or emails. Those will take forever to build trust with your customer. Finally, know how bad your product is. Know when to give up, I should say. Know when to give up. 
Nothing is perfect. Your product or your service is not perfect. If you pretend that it's perfect, if you cannot point out what's not good in it, then you can't be trusted for exactly the same reasons I described before. Because if you, if there's nothing wrong with your product, if you can't tell me one thing that's wrong with your product, and I'm not saying volunteer it, but, but don't pretend that it's perfect, then I don't know how to distinguish between what you said and what is not real, what's real and what's not real. Because everything is good coming out of your mouth. The other thing is don't badmouth your competitors. When you see that uh, you're about to lose a sale maybe to a competitor because the customer starts bringing up the competitor, that's not a signal for you to start badmouthing your competitors. When you badmouth your competitors, your customer or potential customer loses trust in you. Now, you know, the uh, series of books that I wrote, uh, Can I Trust You?, um, each one of them is titled like 50 plus one habits that will make you a trustworthy salesperson. Uh, 70 plus one habits that will make you a trustworthy leader. 67 plus one. What, what's the plus one? The plus one is to know when to give up. You know, I, I remember, I don't remember the name of the movie, but with Alec Baldwin, you'll know what I'm talking about. When he comes in and talks about the ABC, always be closing. Everything needs to end with closing. Not every interaction need to be close and not need to end with closing a deal. I remember when um, I had my own startup company back in Israel, uh, this was in the uh, mid to late 90s, and I went to present my, my products in a trade show in New York. And I took my wife with me. My wife is not a salesperson. But she came with me to act as a salesperson. And, you know, I explained enough about the product. And, and I remember once hearing her, overhearing her in our booth, talking to a customer. And the words that came out of her mouth after having a conversation with the customer is, this product is not right for you. And I was boiling when she said that. I was like, you're not selling. You're, you're telling them not to buy. But what I realized is, you know, maybe she could close the deal, but it's still not going to be a product that they need or the value that they need. And, and what we created is we created a bad customer. You know, even when you don't close the deal, you may not close it now, you may close it later. As a professional speaker now, I, I can't tell you how many times... I was pitching to, to deliver a keynote or a workshop or an educational session, whatever, in a conference, and they didn't take me. And they told me that they took somebody else. And I replied to them saying, that's a great person. She's a great speaker. You're going to love her and be successful with your conference. I wasn't trying to badmouth her. I wasn't trying to get the business anyway. And you know what? Maybe it was a year later, maybe two years later, they would come back for me. Know when to give up. Know how to close when there is no deal to be closed in a way that maybe in the future you will have another deal.
What would you like to know about trust and trustworthiness? Let me know and I'll answer it in a future episode. I would love to hear from you. Email me at yoram at thetrustshow.com. If you like this episode, subscribe to the show so you will automatically get notified when I release a new episode. Rate it. Write a review for this podcast because those ratings help not only you, but also others looking for podcasts just like this. If you're looking for more resources to learn about how to build trust, be trusted, or know who to trust, look up my workshops, online courses, books, or go to my website, trusthabits.com. And remember that the answer to these two questions will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? And can you trust me? Thank you for listening or watching The Trust Show.